You're listening to Playback, a Variety podcast. I'm your host, Variety Awards editor Chris Tapley. We have a legend here today, ladies and gentlemen. He's the Emmy and Golden Globe winning star of films like MASH, Don't Look Now, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Ordinary People, Citizen X, The Hunger Games, I could go on and on. And now he'll have his Oscar, thank you. Donald Sutherland is one of this year's honorary Oscar recipients, receiving his accolade at the Academy's Governor's Awards this weekend. He's also the star of the new film, The Leisure Seeker, which we'll dive into as well. Donald, thanks for coming on the show, sir. No, thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, you know, I put out a feeler to my Twitter followers a couple of weeks back before they had decided the honorary Oscar recipients, and I was just like, you know, who should be honored? Who deserves it? And your name came up more than anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I hope you know there's a very strong sentiment that you've been overdue for this recognition for a long time. So. Well, that, that's lovely. <laughs> that's really lovely. Um, I don't think I'm overdue, but, uh, but I certainly were running out of time uh, <laughs> at 82. Um, no, it was uh, it was a huge surprise. Yeah. I had, I, I didn't. I wasn't really aware of honorary Oscars, and I'd seen them on the Oscar show itself, but. Uh, I was stunned, you know, stunned when they told me. And uh, and did you have any kind of a reaction like you know Peter O'Toole? I don't know if you remember that. Like fifteen years ago, they they were going to honor him in two thousand three, I think, and he declined it. He said, you know, I'm still in the game. I might win it outright. Let's wait. Did you have any kind of a reaction like that? No, 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 no. But Peter had been nominated. Peter was a part of that. I've 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 not been in any way. A part of of uh, you know, except once I gave one away. Mm-hmm. Um, no, uh, no, no, no. I didn't think uh, <laughs> anything like that. And Peter was younger than I am too. I'm I'm eighty two. So uh, yeah, I think he actually at the um, time said, "Let's wait until I'm eighty at least." <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> well it's it's uh, well deserved. And you've, so you've never been to the Governor's Awards then? No. It's a lovely night. I think you'll enjoy it. And yeah, that's what I've been told. They. It's just, you know, it's so relaxed and it's so mm-hmm. easy and it's not 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 disciplined by time constraints and, yeah. you know. And it's not televised either, so you don't have to feel like you're putting no. on a show for somebody no. when you're giving your speech or anything like that. And You're in such great company this year, too, obviously, with Charles Burnett and Agnes Varda and uh, Owen Roisman. Yeah. Uh, you know, did, are, are you fans of their work or you, you what do you think about being in this company? I, I never worked with uh, uh with Roisman at all I I, I looked I thought That's surprising. I, yeah I know because I've shot so many so many movies but uh, no and Charles Burnett's work uh I am familiar more with his interviews actually than his movies <laughs> and Agnes uh, Varda I've, I've met a couple of times uh in Europe years ago yeah well I think you'll enjoy it so uh Again, congratulations on that. Thank you. And, uh, you know, let's let's dive into your career a little bit here, if you don't mind. And, and I'd like to start a little bit off kilter, actually. Uh, you worked with Michael Crichton on The Great Train Robbery. That's really off kilter. <laughs> yeah. And uh, later starred in the adaptation of Disclosure. I, I was just such a fan of his work. And I'd, I'm just curious what he was like as a person to work with on that film as a director. Uh, what, what comes to mind about Michael Crichton? Cold. Ruthless. Um, he's a he was a medical doctor, Michael, and uh, I contracted double pneumonia um, just before we, or maybe we'd already started shooting. 
And um, Michael wanted to replace me because I was going to be in the hospital for a week or two. And uh, and he was he was educated as a as a doctor at Harvard. Um, and um, but the producers said no, they didn't. They, they wanted me to play that character. So I was sick. I got out of hospital and I came back to work. But the day I came back to work, what they, how they had scheduled it, was to shoot a night in the Dublin station, uh, the abandoned old Dublin station. It was colder than you could believe, unbelievably cold. And what Michael had me doing was run from one end of the station to the other all night long. And I had just come out of hospital. And I said to him, Michael, why did you do that? Um, and, and he said, well, I wanted to see if you could make it. In other words, I wanted to know if your health was going to survive that. And if it didn't, then we would be rid of you and on to somewhere else. Um, and I, I personally I didn't appreciate that risk being taken, mm-hmm. um, but I complied with it, and I did the running, and I did it well. But um, but it left a taste in my mouth, and there there are so few tastes in my mouth in whatever it is, one hundred and eighty something films. I have I can name maybe three, hmm. and Michael's there big time. Very tall. I started off with a sour note. Then no, 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 it's not a sour note. It, it's it's the it's true, you know. Yeah. And um, he he wrote uh, uh, disclosure. Uh, Barry was the key to that. The director's the key. Mm-hmm. And Barry Levinson was wonderful. Michael yeah. Douglas was wonderful. Demi was wonderful. So I didn't have anything to do with Michael Crichton there. Mm-hmm. You know. But. Um, but everybody else is wonderful. Got it. Uh, MASH is probably where most people start oh, with you. <laughs> Let's go back to MASH. Sure. Uh, that was obviously a huge moment in your career, uh, working with Robert Altman. And the, the, the fascinating thing about that is uh, you know, the movie is wonderful, one of the great war films. But then the material went on to have such a life beyond the movie as you know, one of the most successful TV shows of all time. What was it like to see that happen after your work on the film was complete and to see it take on that life? I didn't see it, but I was aware of it. And years later, I was in a lineup for The Queen Mother and Prince Philip. Uh, they were going to screen a film that I was not involved with, but I was there. Um, you know, and, and the man standing beside me kind of elbowed me in the ribs as we were lined up in front of The Queen Mother. And he said, my name is Alan Alda. And I would like to thank you for my life. <laughs> and I thought, that's about as charming and as lovely and as generous as you can be. I just, I, you know, it, it, was, it, was, it was brilliant. It was wonderful. Yeah. So, um, so I have the fondest memories of that series, even though I'm not very familiar <laughs> with it. Yeah. Well, how about working with Mr. Altman? Uh, obviously one of the great filmmakers of all time and uh, such a... a an auteur in, in how he uh, made films and, and his stamp was such a personal one and no one made films like Robert Altman. No, they didn't. No, that's true. 
What was it, what was it like working with him for you? Ingo Preminger cast me in that. Uh, he was the man who bought the book and created the project, and uh, and then he cast Elliot, and then he went looking for a director, and finally he found one who had made a television series called Whirly Birds. And he, I think probably mistakenly, I would have been better off not knowing, but he, he did tell me uh, that when Robert Altman and he sat down to negotiate whatever, the first thing he said was, I don't want that fellow Sutherland in the movie. And Ingo said, no, he's, he was my first choice. And then apparently Bob said to him, well, but I, I don't want him to have uh, top billing. And Bob said, and Ingo said, no, he has top billing. So um, that kind of, so you've hit Michael Crichton. You've hit Michael Crichton. <laughs> Doing well. There, there's only one more, and his name is Richard Marquand. But okay. Others, Wasn't you want to know about Richard Marquand? That's the eye of the needle. That's the eye of the needle. I, uh, <laughs> in the eye of the needle, I had to punch my hand through a, a glass, right? Uh-huh. A sugar glass. Uh, you just punch your hand through and nothing happens. I punched my hand through the window, and suddenly my hand started bursting blood, literally spurting out of it. And uh, I had this huge scar, and they couldn't stop the blood, and finally they got it stopped. I said, what's going on? That that wasn't sugar glass. And the prop man said, uh, no, that was real glass. I said, it was real glass? And you didn't tell me? He said, no, we weren't allowed to tell me. Uh, Richard didn't like the look of the sugar glass. He put the real glass in there, and he told us, if we told you, we would be fired. So, that's well, three. Well, we got that out of the okay. way. Okay, <laughs> we can talk about Federico Fellini and Bernardo Bellucci and Nick Rogue and, and uh, Robert Redford, uh, anybody. That's funny. Everybody. They're all, I might have thought Oliver Stone might be one of those, actually. Oh, no, Oliver. Gosh, he was... <laughs> He was a pure delight. Yeah? He was just... Let's dive into that. JFK is one of my favorite films. Yeah. And and that scene... He's he's brilliant, Oliver. Brilliant. That scene is just... uh, You know, I had Kevin Costner in here last year. I was grilling him about it as well. That that scene you shared together is such a... It's like one of the great hair-raising sequences in cinema. It's like a 15-minute just like amazing feat of editing and cinematography and, and just the, the, the construction but then the performance you're giving and Kevin, I remember in the uh, director's commentary, Oliver said that Kevin's one of the great listening actors yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's crucial in that scene obviously, yeah, but yeah talk about working you know, on that scene and, and with Oliver. I didn't work on that scene with Oliver, I worked on that scene with my wife uh, we were in France and uh, we spent probably three months Walking up and down in the in the Bois de Boulogne, uh, where I would be saying the text and she would be hearing it, and because it was essential for me that uh, it wasn't memorized material, that it was stuff coming out of the gut of of Fletcher Prouty, uh, who was the uh, the real life source of that material, um, and that if if I needed to, I could have picked up a telephone and spoken to somebody and said, okay, and then gone right back to where I had been speaking, like you like you do in real life, mm-hmm. you know, unless you're 82 and you forgot where you were. <laughs> but, uh, and it's, uh, 
And so when I came to New Orleans, uh, because Oliver had, I can't remember exactly the circumstances, but he wanted to speak to me about it. And we were sitting at a bar, not a, you know, just a, a situation kind of like this, but higher. I think they must have used it as a bar. Um, and Oliver said, well, let me talk about it. And I said, why, why don't I just do it? And I did it. And Kevin was sitting beside me. And uh, I did it for Oliver. And he he said, wow, that's acting. And he turned to Kevin. And Kevin said, that's what we all do. That's what it's <laughs> called. It's called acting. I loved him. He was just <laughs> great. He was terrific. And then we, uh, I came in for one night to Washington. And we did it. The stuff, uh, the pre-assassination stuff the night before. And then we did that speech in the morning. They shot it with uh, 600 and 300 millimeter lenses. It was the last day. Oliver and Kevin were on their way on a trip to the Far East or the Mideast or somewhere. And, um, and we shot it in the morning. You know, And then it was, and the focus pullers were the most nervous people I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> yeah, they... Looked like potential for Parkinson's disease. <laughs> Bob Richardson's a, a friend. He, he's oh, sorry, uh, Robert Richardson, the DP of that film. Oh yeah, he's an amazing DP and some of the best work I've seen uh, in a film, frankly. Um, what did that film feel like? Like you know, the the did it strike you as just pure fantasy, or you know, just what it's about and, and the 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 premise that it's putting forth? Or you know, did did you kind of bog down in that at all? Because you, you, your scene is such a dense information scene in those terms. So just curious how that struck you. I'd already made a film about it. I'd, um, I'd commissioned the writers. It was called Executive Action. Mm -hmm. I was supposed to play in it, but I couldn't. Burt Lancaster did. Dalton Trumbull rewrote the script, and Dalton was so, so damaged mm. by, um, by, by the, um, the, by the blacklist, that uh, his rewriting softened it. Mm. Uh, the original script by Mark Lane and uh, Donald Freed was tough and hard, and I believed every minute of it. Mm -hmm. You know, and I still do. Mm -hmm. uh, I always ask actors who have worked with Anthony Minghella for some observations. You were in uh, Cold. I, I had very little to do. I mean, yeah. he was the most charming lovely yeah. man and the and tim bricknell the um, the producer of of danny boyle's pro project trust um was working for him and so we speak about him a lot um but i just i was i was devastated by the loss of him mm -hmm. um, and, and it was incomprehensible to me he uh, he was such a meditative soul, you know, so deliberate, so generous, so, um, it was like working with James Gray. James Gray is, is just plain delicious, you know, he, no, he's, <laughs> he's fantastic. I, I tell you, tell you something, he said to me, uh, because one of the actors was going to get shot and I was sitting beside him and he said, I, th I think you should, as soon as the shot happens, you should react. I said, let me tell you something. Uh, Goose Gossage 
was throwing a baseball, and it hit Ron Say, who was the third baseman of the Dodgers. Ron Say, uh, who's a right-handed batter, it hit him on his left temple and knocked him straight down. So the ball is coming in, the ball hits him, he falls to the ground, and the umpire yells, Watch out! <laughs> I said, nothing happens that quickly, you know. You know, even when you get shot yourself, you say, what was that? The, um, uh, so, and then the point about this is that as soon as I said it, he went through, James did, every inning, every player of that game. I, I, wow. I always took my breath away all the time. <laughs> I, I, I just love him. Are you a Dodgers fan, by the way? By which way? By the way, are you a Dodgers fan? Rick Monday ruined my life. Oh, okay. So, no. I was a Montreal Expos fan. Got it. Got and it. Rick Monday hit a ball over the... Oh, Steve Rogers was I the hit pitcher. on a fourth one somehow. Steve, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. Steve Rogers was the, the pitcher. And they had... Uh, oh, uh, <laughs> Jim Fanning. They'd, they'd fired Dick Williams, who was a wonderful manager, and they'd fired him, the, the head office had fired him, because they didn't think he was nice enough to the players. I'm sorry. Um, who cares about nice enough? How about <laughs> winning a ball game? Anyway, and they brought Jim Fanning up from uh, from the minor leagues because he was a scout, he was a brilliant scout, but he was not a manager. And for me, I kept saying, how can you have a manager whose name is synonymous with swinging at a pitch and missing, you know? (laughs) Uh, But anyway, uh, Steve Rogers, who was a, he was a, he was our lead race pitcher, but he had, he had psychological problems. He just, it was difficult for him. And uh, he threw a ball. I'm, I'm sitting right there. He threw a ball to Rick Monday um, because what Fanning had done, Ray Burroughs was, was our pitcher, and Ray was a terrific batter, and it was the bottom of the eighth, tied at home, and we were playing in Montreal. It was the last game of the uh, league championship series, and uh, and he pinch hit for Ray Burroughs, and we didn't have a reliever. All the only person in the bullpen was Steve Rogers, and uh, and he pinch hit and he um, oh gosh yeah anyway he did, <laughs> he brought in a player whose name shall be I'm not going to name him uh, who swung at the first three pitches and and was out uh, and then Rick Monday came up uh, and Steve Rogers was pitching and Steve Rogers pitched a ball right across his chest I mean it was. You, it was the sweetest ball you've ever seen for anybody to hit over the fence. And and Rick Monday didn't swing at it. And I thought, oh, my God, thank heavens. And then he pitched the same ball again, and Rick Monday put it over the right field fence, and I had a minor heart attack or oh. whatever it is, or a brain tumor or everything. <laughs> I mean, I just died. But in the interview afterwards, Jim Fanning and uh, and Steve Rogers are there together. And the uh, the interviewer is saying, but um, Steve is not a relief pitcher. And Jim Fanning mumbled something. And Steve Rogers said to him, but I have told you, my first inning is always the worst inning. <laughs> and Jim Fanning said, but this was the ninth. 
I'm going to try to find a fifth one. <laughs> no, 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 there, no, 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 that's, but you know about Rick Monday, Rick Monday, they had a book on, uh, on baseball superstitions and they mm-hmm. went to Rick Monday and they said, what is your superstition? And he said, I don't have one. And they said, you don't have one? Every baseball player has a, have, has a superstition. Why don't you have one? He said, I think they're bad luck. Oh my gosh. Do you have one? Do I have one? Yeah. I have so many. My hat was buried <laughs> under the mound at uh, wow. at Expo Stadium. Wow. So, yes. The answer is yes. Um, <laughs> not a detour I was expecting. Mm-hmm. So not, not the detour I was expecting talking to you today. Well, why would you expect anything? I, I guess you're right. What's the point of I expecting I should come in here anything? open and not expect. I, mm. I, didn't, I didn't expect you to wear yeah. headphones, for instance. But, but it's radio. <laughs> it is. You're yeah. right. You're right. This concentrates you. I, get, you know? I should probably do it, actually. I would have thought so. I, maybe I look unprofessional now. Gosh, you got me on edge. <laughs> let's talk about some of the uh, other filmmakers. Yeah, it's kind of like a lightning round at this point, but Robert Redford, let's start there. Ordinary People, uh, his big debut, uh, such a huge hit at the Academy Awards. Uh, what was it like working with Robert Redford as a director? Perfect. Yeah. Wonderful. Objective. Uh, a brilliant vision. Very pure. Um, a great respect for Alvin Sargent's script. Uh, the the um, there's a scene in the movie where um, the character that I play uh, was downstairs, and Mary came down, my wife, uh, and said, "Calvin, what?" what's going on? And I said, I don't know whether I love you anymore. And I was weeping. And she turned around and walked up. And uh, we looked at Russia's, because we looked at Russia's in. <gasps> I'll tell you a story about John Shuck and Bob uh, Altman. Um, but we looked at Russia's, and I said, I've really messed you. I've really screwed you. I've done the worst possible thing. I've done this actor's thing of weeping, and I should not have been weeping. I, I should have been finished with my remorse and my grief. And now I was just sitting there vacant and empty and, and with a, a, a bowl of salt water swilling tears in my, in my belly. <laughs> and everybody said, no, 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 this is perfect. This is so dramatic. It's lovely. Three months after we wrapped, Robert Redford phoned me and said, listen, I think you were right. I think we should reshoot that, but I don't have the set. John Bailey's not available. Mary Tyler Moore is in New York doing Whose Life Is It Anyway? And so I would have to play Mary, and we just have a window with a curtain. Will you redo it? So that's what you see in the movie. That's all you needed. Uh-huh. That's all you needed anyway, right? You didn't need to bring the set back together. and. no. Uh, but, can, but can you imagine the guts yeah, of that man? That's, that's an, the, that's, the brilliance of him being able to see through all of that so precisely and pulling it back and knowing what he needed and getting it. And it's his first film. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, I imagine his career as an actor informed so much of that. And for you, you know, when actors are directors, they, they tend to anticipate the needs of their cast, I guess, a little bit better. So did you get what that you feeling? I just empathize. Anticipate the needs of their cast. 
just empathy, knowing what you're going through, knowing what you might need to get through a scene. I mean, I'm, well, speaking, I as, so. I'm speaking as a layman, so yeah, you, you tell me. I don't, I don't think so. I think, like, the best thing in the world was, was James Gray sitting beside the camera, you know, like it used to be mm-hmm. in the old days. Because you're working for the director, mm-hmm. and it doesn't have so much to do with your needs as your ability to communicate the essential truth of the character with with that director. Uh, and so the closer he can be, you know, um, Video Village is not my favorite thing. Uh, mine was the intimate relationship with the director, you know. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, just so I can mention the film that you're talking about with James Gray, that's Ad Astra, which you are working on now. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about... It's Tommy Lee Jones, and but but it stars Brad Pitt. Yeah. He's How... wonderful. Brad? Oh, yeah. gosh, he's great. And Tommy <laughs> Lee, I had dinner with him. He's, gosh, he hasn't changed a bit. I mean, because <laughs> we flew into space together. I, yes, the uh, Space Cowboys. Uh, Robert Town. He's a great, great scene writer scriptwriter um and he was wonderful in in his ability to to move that subjective process which is writing into the objective process that was directing and i thought his film was terrific really terrific it got sold incorrectly and in that it was sold as a love story between the girl and uh, and billy crudup's character mm-hmm. When in fact it was really a love story between a, a mentor and, and the failure of that mentor and Billy Crudup's character, yeah. Steve Prefontaine. Yeah. But it was really, really well done, and it's uh, it's a piece of work I'm really proud of. And you mentioned Fellini yourself. Let's talk about. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's, you mentioned Fellini yourself. Let's talk about Federico Fellini, Fellini's Casanova. That must have been a pleasure. To work with a guy like that. I, I love him. I, I miss him terribly. The um, I don't know how you start. Yeah. Federico, it was we worked together for thirteen months, and uh, everything you could dream of in the process of working, from looking across and saying to you. Um, Uno, uno, due, tre, tre, quattro, quattro, cinque, cinque, sei, sei, sette, otto, otto, nove. Uh, these were lines that he would give me, <laughs> and I would say, what am I doing? And he would say, you were talking to someone who's speaking on the on the Internet. And I would say, and I say, he said, yes, you say, otto, nove, otto. You know, um, it was just, it was brilliant. It was a, a flight into the imagination of a genius, you know. And he didn't look at rushes. We, I was going to talk to you about Bob Altman. Yeah. And Bob, I have to tell you. <laughs> I have I have a huge affection for him. And and he he made my life, you know. Or Ingo made my life, really. Uh, and then you made Alan's. Well, and then you made Alan Alda's. <laughs> yes. And, and, and Elliot, you know, because the relationship with Elliot was... It was a love relationship. I, I, I don't think with any other man I have felt that closeness, that collaboration, that joy, that delight. 
Uh, and there was something just, about just grand, but anyway, uh, John shook because we looked at rushes every day, and uh, the the whole company, everybody, went into this the theater and sat there and looked at rushes and applauded and laughed and whatever. <laughs> and John Shuck said, "Listen, tomorrow I have a scene, Bob, uh, where I have to say to this San Francisco football player." I'm going to knock your block off. Can I, uh, just for the rushes, say one take where I say, I'm going to knock your fucking block off. <laughs> and then I, and so uh, Bob said, sure. So he did. And so it's shown in the rushes and it's hysterical and we all love it. And uh, then Putney Smoke comes out, Robert Downey Sr.'s picture. And that uses the word fuck in it. <laughs> and, uh, so it was okay. It was suddenly okay. And John Shuck's line, which was shot, you know, months before it was legal, <laughs> was suddenly there. That's you know? funny. Uh, yeah. But that's Bob, too. That was the way he thought. I mean, he he was open to everything. And making that film, and I've not, I've not been in any film ever since that was like it, where we uh, we said one thing for the master and another thing for the medium shot and something altogether different for the close-up the the sound I don't know whether the audio I don't know what which he was but the audio audio edit I'm not sure but whoever it was for the sound who put it all together received an Oscar for that and he deserved a Nobel Prize. All that overlapping dialogue yeah it's an intense uh, thing to accomplish to say the least. And now, uh, Leisure Seeker is the film you have this year. I wanted to jump ahead to that and make sure we talk about it. This is you and the great uh, Helen Mirren in a Winnebago driving on a road trip from Boston down to the Keys. Uh, lovely film. Can you film. imagine anything better? No, no. I cannot, no. honestly. Did it, was it uh, filmed in such a way? I mean, or did you just kind yeah, of... Yeah, yeah, sure. So you, you went... You did, we, you, we didn't start in Boston. We started further south. But we went... You covered some terrain. Oh, though. boy, did we ever, yeah. Yeah, and I drove the whole way. <laughs> and uh, and that sucker didn't have brakes. But <laughs> but nobody else could drive it. It was just old days. Like in, uh, in Trust, I had to drive a 1962 Cadillac convertible. And nobody else could really drive it because they weren't familiar with steering wheels that had about half a wheel of play in them. And, <laughs> yeah, I bet. Uh, no. Uh, and, and Paolo... Uh, Paolo Virzi. Virzi is the director here. Yeah. And what was he like to work with? He, he, did you see his film, Human Capital? Yeah. Uh, Stephen Amidon, the, the writer, uh, wrote the novel and wrote that script and wrote our script. Um, he's terrific, you know. And Paolo... Has it's it's very hard for someone who doesn't really speak English to do something like a road trip in, a road trip in the United States, uh, and I thought he did it beautifully. Working with him was was a delight. Did I you mean, go to was, Venice for the? Uh... I did. Yeah, I was in uh, that week, which is why I fell asleep in the dentist's office yesterday. <laughs> he was drilling <laughs> drilling my tooth, and I. I said, I think I fell asleep. He said, you were asleep for five minutes. You were snoring. My assistant had to hold your head so that I could continue drilling. 
And uh, but I was, we were here doing. We were in Quebec, and then we flew to Los Angeles. We, as my wife and I, we flew to Los Angeles uh, to do the week with uh, James Gray and Brad Pitt. I flew back to Canada to get my dress clothes together. Flew to New York to get my hair cut. Uh, flew to London the next day to get it dyed, uh, and and then flew to Aberdeen to shoot three days on an oil rig. Then flew back to London and shot half a day there. Then caught a, an evening flight to Venice and had the two days in Venice for the festival. Then flew that Monday to Rome for four days shooting in Italian uh, for trust, all of this for trust. And then flew to Toronto for three days there. Then went home to get rid of the dress clothes and flew back to Rome to finish the shooting there. And then flew from Rome the day I was finished back here to Los Angeles to shoot this week with James Gray. You got a vacation coming up? That was it. (laughs) Well, I hope you found some downtime amid all of that. Um, on an airplane. God, yeah, that, that'll do it, I guess. You get 12 hours on a flight or something. Uh, once again, congratulations on the Academy Honor. Thank you. I, I, I do believe you're long overdue for that, and uh, as others do as well. And I hope you enjoy yourself this weekend at the Am I uh, done? Governor's Awards. This is it, man. Oh, shoot. 30, 30, 34 minutes. We're a little bit over, actually. We, we? Could, we could keep going. I mean, I never got to Alan Pakula and... Bertolucci. I mean, just maybe you'll come back. I don't know if you had a good will, time. Yeah, you can list the names and uh, like Alan was. They were all perfect. Yeah. I, could, uh, I mean, I'd love to talk about stuff like Buffy the Kelly's Vampire Heroes. Slayer. How about Kelly's Heroes? Kelly's yeah. Heroes was the one that uh, Brian Brian G Hutton. He was he was great. There was another film where I I, I had gone there to Yugoslavia and I had a I had a six week hiatus simply because they they didn't need my character in those six weeks it it was a six month shooting schedule and I shot the first day and then that night I had contracted because I had been swimming in the Danube I contracted spinal meningitis Mm. bacterial spinal meningitis we were playing poker I kept going under the table to rest because I was so tired and then my assistant picked me up and walked me to the hospital uh, and I went into a coma um, saw my body from over my right shoulder going down the the blue tunnel to the light below and wow. I forced myself to stay alive And uh, but I was in a coma and if you know anybody who's in a coma talk to them talk to them because they hear it I heard the producer and his associate uh, dictating the telegram to a secretary in my room, in my room, explaining to my wife that she shouldn't fly over to Yugoslavia, that they would send the body home because Jeez. I was going to die, but I didn't die. And they sent me to Charing, to Charing Cross Hospital, and I had six weeks, the six weeks that I had for a vacation, uh, I had in Charing Cross Hospital. They brought me back when my six weeks was up, but it was still too soon, so my brain was fried. And working with Brian, Brian came upstairs. It was Brian, um, Carol O'Connor, Telly Savalas, Don Rickles, and Clint. And uh, Brian came up my room, and I was frantic with nerves. And uh, Brian said, uh, 
come on down. Everybody wants to welcome you. And I said, but I, 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 do I have? And he said, yes, you have to. And I said, okay, well, should I wear a jacket or not? He said, I don't care whether you, would you, why don't you do whatever you want? I said, I think I'll wear a jacket. He said, okay. So I had the jacket on and I went downstairs and Kelly shook my hand and, and, and no, Clint shook my hand and, and Kelly hit it a crooked little finger, ran it across my cheek with a great big grin and Carol O'Connor started to cry and Don Rickles looked at me and said, what are you wearing the jacket for? <laughs> Classic Don Rickles. Uh, make sure you wear a jacket to the Governor's Awards. I wear a bow tie. You might want to. Might want to do that. And again, congratulations and thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate thank you. it. Okay. Prose that is poetry is Hemingway's secret. People have confused his simplicity. Is want any special sauces for your burger? No, no, we'll be fine. Thank you, Chantal. Thank you. Check it out. 75, Winnebago Indian. Our name is a leisure seeker. We've had a lot of wonderful trips in this old rust bucket. I'm finally taking John to see Hemingway's house in Key West. Kids, we won't be gone long. You know that Dad can't drive in this condition. Where are we? We're not home. No, hon. This is Pennsylvania. What the dickens are we doing in Pennsylvania? This is just something I really need to do with your father. Who's that? That's the littlest one. He's got a name, and it's Will. Well, yeah, William. Who are these people? Your nephews and nieces. No, you students. My husband suffers from memory loss, and I'm afraid he might just wander off and get hurt. John! Hop aboard. All that? What are you doing on a motorcycle? They're dangerous, for God's sake. I start a sentence by the time I get to the end of it. Yeah, I remember how it started. Where's Ella? I'm here, John. Is that really you? Who are you? John. My John is charming, educated. You stole him from me, and I want you to give him back. Whoever stole him from you stole him from me, too. Promise me something. Don't leave me. Oh, I promise. I can't believe I'm married to somebody as beautiful as you. Folks need a hand. Triple A will be here in just a minute. Give me a purse. It's in the camper. Just like eight bucks in here. Make sure the safety's off before you start shooting them, sweetheart. Already done it, hon. Our old trips, whenever this adventurous, were they? <laughs> I am so glad to be back on the road again. Is this heaven? Maybe. Do you think a guy can get a burger up here? Mm-hmm.